Welcome to Spartan Up Podcast. We are your grit and resiliency partner. We come at you every week, sometimes every day, to give you a little kick in the ass, get you out of bed, get you off the couch, and get you moving. I am with my buddy Marco Cicetto. Johnny, Colonel Nye, and Sapphire are climbing a mountain, so we're going to cover this woman. She is unbelievable. She wrote this book, Limitless, after interviewing tens of thousands of people. So she learned what works, what doesn't. Were you impressed? Yes, and this was not just recruiting just a low-level individual. These were the top-notch guys. And she said she figured out something, that these guys were not even happy at where they were. Don't give away too much. So, so we got a little sneak peek. We have a, a program called Spartan X. It's a leadership series. It happens all over the world. We bring teams together from companies. We bring individuals in. And then people like Marco, people like Laura come up on stage and teach you how to be limitless, right? Teach you how to be a limitless team, a limitless individual, help your family. Yes, and just living that life without limiting yourself. Just live it to the fullest. Live it to the fullest, and that's what we're going to do. Let's listen to her, and then we're going to come back. Marco and I are going to recap some of the fine points to crush life, to bring you to the best version of yourself. All right, we are here for Spartan Up Podcast. We're in Fenway in one of the clubhouses here with Laura Gessner Odding. Just wrote a book called Limitless. Hang on, I'm going to show it to you. I don't know if you can see that or not. Um, you sent this to my office, and it's been floating around my house, my wife, my kids, everybody's been looking at it. We all want to be limitless. Yeah, of course. But I want to get into your history first. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Miami. Easy times. Oh, yeah. Great. 1988, Miami, Florida. It was like Scarface all the time. Right, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It was a big drug. Um, was, oh, yeah. So what was that like? Uh, it was a lot of drugs, yeah. I, uh, I did not learn a whole lot in high school, but I learned how to roll a joint pretty well. Huh. Yeah. And, then, and then, so how'd you pivot? I thought I was going to run for office. I was going to be like the first female senator from the great state of Florida. I was going to solve all the problems. And so I went to college, graduated, came back, uh, went to law school, and on the first day of law school looked around and said, oh, this is terrible. I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. But for Awful. somebody, wait, hang on, because for somebody who didn't do well in school... Um, it seems like you started to pick up some steam. Oh, no, I didn't say I didn't do well. School okay. just wasn't that hard because basically, I mean, I joke around that our cheerleading uniforms came in small, medium, large, and maternity. Like, there right. was just the fact that we got out of high school without being arrested was like, woo, winner. So I, it wasn't that hard to do enough to graduate. Just get by. I did fine. Yeah, yep. I did well enough. But you had ambition to go to college. Yeah, I had a ton of ambition to go to college. I wanted to, I, I, I thought I was going to like do big things. I wanted to like be the person in front. And then when I was in law school, I, I, I did what most people do when they're in situations that they're unhappy with. I dated this guy who was terrible for me. And I joke around that he had, he had really good taste in precisely two things. The first was obviously girlfriends, right? Yeah. <laughs> the second was unknown presidential candidates from tiny southern states. And he brought me to this campaign office where I heard then-Governor Bill Clinton talking about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. So I dropped out of law school. I joined the campaign. And one thing led to another biggest yada yada in the history of storytelling and I ended up working in the White House in the office that created AmeriCorps. Oh wow. That's a, that's so that a, that's was cool. a fun ride. Okay. Yeah. That was a fun ride. Yeah. We also had a lot of drug testing so the whole you know Miami high school drug days over. But um, yeah I spent four years working in the first Clinton administration and helping create this amazing program. That's awesome. 
And then, and then what happened? And then I went to my boss and I said, I would love to go back on the campaign trail. Sounds awesome. Let's get him reelected. And he said, you are too old to get back on a campaign trail and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors. I was all of 26, right? So like that's like a thousand years old in campaign days, like dog years. He goes, but you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So you should go talk to my friend Arnie Miller. He runs the biggest search firm in the country that does specifically nonprofit work. You'll do something important. And so at 26, with no skills and a big Rolodex, I became a headhunter. But I loved it. I loved it because I got to spend my days talking to people about what they cared about and why they were doing the work they were doing and why they showed up, you know, in the really hard times to do pretty difficult work. And then I had a moment of rage where I realized that I could do it better and smarter and faster and with more profit and more authenticity and more integrity than these like big old traditional firms. So I started my own company. In Boston? In Boston. What did you call it? I called it the Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group. That's a a long name. Catchy, right? (laughs) Okay. I was like 11 months pregnant with my first kid. So, you know, moment of rage, hormonal, you know, moment, not a background in marketing. Yeah. Yeah. We were successful despite the name. (laughs) Yeah. How did did it go? I mean, you're, you're pregnant. Yeah. You're starting a new business. Yeah. You're in a cold town. Yeah. I have 24 hours of labor in an unplanned C-section. Yeah. So then I get a phone call um, while I'm sitting at my kitchen table going, what did I do? (laughs) That was the biggest mistake ever. And it was a friend of mine from my White House days who says, so um, I heard you had a baby. Uh, 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 Cool, (laughs) I guess. Um, Are you still doing search? Our CEO just left. And I said, well, actually, yes, I am. And then I opened up my laptop and I Googled how to write a professional services contract. Nice. This was your first customer. That was my first customer. And then we grew 100% every year from there for 15 years. And then I sold it to my team four years ago. And now I'm on my third career reinvention as a professional speaker and an author. And so what did you learn during those 15 years of, of uh, talking? To, I don't know, how, many, how many people come through a search firm like yours? I probably interviewed thousands of leaders. Uh, and I was placing people in nonprofits, but they were all coming from either nonprofits, uh, government, uh, the public sector, corporate work. So it, it, they were coming from all, all walks of life. And what I found was interesting was, I mean, I was only talking to the most successful people, right? Because I was placing them in these you know, major organizations that weave our civic infrastructure. And so I was talking to them because they were successful. But they were talking to me because they weren't happy. And I was so fascinated. It's a good point, right? If somebody's talking to a search professional, they're looking to move. Yeah. And if they're looking to move, they're probably not happy where they are. Yeah, there's something there that's right. not fully fully keeping them satisfied. Meshed together. And, and is that, that's intriguing to you more when you're having those conversations more so than, hey, let's talk about salary uh, opportunities and this and that. You, you were very interested in why are you happy or not happy or what's going on beneath the surface. Yeah, so um, I used to listen for like eight motivating factors when I would call people up. And it was things like, what's the mission of the organization? Am I inspired by the leadership? What are the skills I'm going to learn? What's the impact I'm going to have? And yeah, there were things like geography and flexibility and money, but everybody everybody measures those things differently. So if you're someone who likes to go on like, you know, backwoods, you know, deep camping vacations, 
you don't need a lot of money, but you need a lot of time. Right. Or if you're someone like me who's, you know, kind of a princess and you want to go to like a fancy, you know, hotel and have your breakfast in bed, you don't need a lot of time, but you need a lot of money. Right. right? So we're all going to measure those things differently. And what recruits you to a job and what retains you in a job are two totally different things. Sure. So I was blessed because every day I got to listen to people tell me why they did what they did. I didn't have to hear like, you know, how, why they're incre- you know, how much they're increasing shareholder value. I got to hear why they were in love with this organization, this brand, this paycheck, and what it meant in their actual lives, like the kinds of life that they wanted to build. How does this job contribute to that? And so the book Limitless is really wrapped around the idea that if success doesn't equal happiness, then what does? Because, because they say most billionaires are unhappy. Isn't that fascinating? Right. And you don't just define success as uh, monetary success, right? I don't. Um, everybody, everybody defines success differently, right? So what does success mean to you? But they might not know it because I, we, we have a picture in our head of what success is. Yeah, and we're all carrying around the scorecard, right, this right. checklist in our back pocket right. that we've had since before we even got it. Like, did you have a teacher when you were young who were like, hey, and they were like, hey, Joe, you know, you, you're argumentative. You should become a lawyer. Or, yeah, right? Or, or like, right. you're really good at math. Maybe right. you should think about becoming right. a stockbroker. Or right. you're good at science. You should be a doctor. We all have those people in our lives, right? I had that, I had that teacher. I had a parent. I had a, a boss. I had people throughout my life who said, these are the things you should do. These are the things you must do. Right. These are the things you can't do. And I went, okay, fine, right? And then there's the person inside of us that when we're 16, 17, 18 years old, picks a college or a trade or a major or, or a path or something. And we're like, okay, that's what I'm going to do for life. But you know what we're missing when we're 16, 17, 18 years old? Yeah. Right? Like the frontal lobe, like the actual part of our brain that dictates good decision making. And so here we are then at 40 years old and we look back and we say, I'm really not happy. And we're counting on that 17 year old, you know, prefrontal cortex to have decided what that means to us. It just doesn't make any sense. And so we have to stop. What's, well, what's a better what's a better way? So a better way is to say, well, what do I actually care about? What is meaningful to me? When am I the very best version of myself? You know those moments when the very best of what you do is being brought about to solve a problem you actually care about, and you're being rewarded in some way that matters to you, whether it's karmic or financial or psychic, right? Those are those moments where you're in consonance, right? Well, like what you do matches who you are, and you know those moments because you can walk through walls. You can leap over tall buildings. You're, you're unstoppable. You're limitless. Yeah. So I want people to stop listening to this other definition of what success should be. Everyone else's path, everyone else's ideas, everyone else's checklist. And listen to that version of yourself when you are your very best. And lean into that instead of that other nonsense that's like all the noise in our brain. You know my my um, issue throughout all the years of, of uh, hiring employees, working alongside people is um, a lot of people will say things like that. Not, exact, not as eloquently as you just said it. But then they'll sit around waiting, and then they don't, they don't go anywhere. Yeah. So they're frozen. Yeah, because they're scared of the discomfort. So when, when, when we get hired for a job, we get hired because we show some competence in something. So then, like, how do we get, how do we get promoted? How do we get, you know, uh, uh, how do we progress in our career? We stay in that center of competence, that center of excellence. And if we go to the left, if we go to the right, we might fail and we get scared. But, like, think about our kids. They figure out algebra. They go to geometry. You get geometry. It's time for trigonometry. You've got trigonometry. It's like, hold the phone. Here comes calculus. And they fail every single day as they're trying to learn it. But we as adults get scared to do that. And so, you know, I think we have to look at our kids and remember that failure is not finale. 
It's fulcrum, right? right? Failure is the place from which we grow. And the only way that we can do that is to get really comfortable being uncomfortable. Music to my ears, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's our, whole, our whole business is getting people uncomfortable. But you're right. I mean, um, I, I like to use the analogy. If you, were, if, we, if you and I, if we grew up in a greenhouse, um, we'd be a plant that's uh, really comfortable, right? And probably can't withstand reality. Versus uh, being a plant that grew up on the side of a mountain with wind and storm and wrapping roots around a rock. And, and that's the uncomfortable place. But that's where, that's where it happens, the good stuff. Yeah, no one ever changes because of comfort. Nobody ever sits on the couch and goes, oh, everything's fine. Like, have you ever had those moments when you're sitting on the couch and you're watching like 15 episodes of something on Netflix and you're not going to get up unless like, you have to go pee or something? Like, You don't get up unless you have to. Sure. Like, there always has to be something that forces you to do something different. And you know, for me, it's always been those moments where I've pushed beyond my level of comfort when I've had like eight or nine toes over like the bleeding edge of my incompetence yeah. and that's where I've sort of figured out who I, who I am happens. it's where the magic happens when I was 38 I, I 39 I ran my first mile like of my life like ever right so there are people who know me today who think of me as an athlete and I I still think that's hilarious right like I'm I, I I'm a competitive rower and in the morning the the boat the 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 Coach will come up next to us on his launch, and he'll be like, okay, athletes, here's what we're going to do next. And I'm like, he's, he's talking about me. Like, right. It's still funny to me 10 years later that I'm considered an, an athlete, athlete by anyone. But when I ran my first marathon in 2012, you know, as you know, in marathon training, you get to 20 miles, and then you taper. And it was 92 degrees in 2012 in the Boston Marathon. And I, I have this very unexciting um, thing called vasovagal syncope which means that I tend to pass out when I get really dehydrated you know like most people but it happens a little earlier so it's 92 degrees and I get to mile 16 and I see my husband he puts ice packs like in ziploc bags in my jog bra and then I got to mile 17 and I see a friend and she was like oh my god that's awesome what a great idea and I was like where'd these come from like I was so out of it so by the time I got to mile 20 I I I got I didn't know what was going to happen I remember thinking wonder what happens now right and there's a voice in my head because you were in a place you hadn't been before I was way out in a place I hadn't been before and I think my brain was boiling in this heat and I there was a voice inside my head that said you're gonna do this like you're gonna finish this race and somebody's gonna put a medal around your neck and a heat sheet around your body and you're gonna be a marathoner like walk raw run crawl cartwheel you're gonna be a marathoner for the rest of your life and then there's another voice in my head going, what are you thinking? You're going to die out here. Stop, stop, stop. And my feet are like basically melting into the pavement. like, And all I can think of is, I, I, what do I do? Right? Like I had to decide. Nobody's pushing you. It's not even like rowing where, you know, if you stop rowing, you get thrown out of the boat. Like I had to make a decision every single step to put one foot in front of the you're next. You're going to go or you're going to stop? You're the only one that gets to decide that, right. right? Like in those moments of deep discomfort, you're the only one who gets to decide that. And and I think that the more that we can train ourselves to be uncomfortable, the more that we can train ourselves to fail at living into everyone else's idea of who we should be, the more when we hear those voices, we make the decision to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Because I think confidence to do big things comes from competence. Every time you put one foot in front of the other and you don't actually die, you're like, oh, I'm made of more than wasn't, I thought. wasn't so bad. wasn't so bad. I did okay. 
right? You know, that thing where people say like, pain is temporary and pride is forever. Yeah. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. And I think every time you think you can't go any further, if you push yourself to just go just a little bit more, you realize that you're made of so much more than you thought before. I, um, I remember when that moment hit me. I was in a race. I was in um, northern, I was in Switzerland. And uh, we were about two days into this thing. We were waist deep snow and I collapsed and I said, I'm done. Yeah. Can't take another step. Leave me here. But I meant that it wasn't even, I didn't smile. It was, yeah, you were done. I was done. And then you get up and you go eight more days. And and I remember reflecting on that the rest of my life. I like, you've always got eight more days, (laughs) right? And so you could always push through. But how'd you do it? Did you have people with you? Did you have people with me? And did they, they didn't let you settle for mediocrity? Yeah, exactly. You don't settle for me. You get up, you put one foot in front of the other, you make it to the next tree. Yeah to the next moose. <laughs> I think it's so important to have those people in your life. I have this yeah. woman, uh, Carrie Lorenz, who was the, the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the Navy. Like, I might have spoke to her. She's pretty amazing. Yeah. She's like yeah. six feet tall. She gets yeah. on stage in full leather. Yeah. She's gorgeous. She's yeah. amazing. And I called her up and my book was almost done. And I said, you know, I know we don't know each other that well, but you're such a badass. You're so amazing. Do you think maybe possibly you might consider one day even like remotely thinking about blurring my book? Right. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Right. So I sent her my book. She calls me two days later, and she goes, can we talk about your book for a minute? And I thought, because I'm naive, that she was going to praise me. Right? Right. <laughs> she was going to tell me it was amazing. And she says, and, and, I, and, and I, I, I'm not going to make you guys bleep, bleep out every single one of these words, but basically, and this is a direct quote, she goes, you know, Laura, you're really effing smart, and your book is really effing good, but you're too effing smart for your book just to be really effing good. I need to go make it effing great, and I'll blurp the shit out of it. Oh, nice. She said, that when was someone... That was honest. It was honest. And then she spent 45 minutes on the phone helping me figure out. Because I was like, I know, and I just like, got stuck, and I couldn't... And she helped me figure it out. And she said, look, in the military, when somebody falls on the field, you don't let them stay there. You go back for them. Right. So you, that person has to be worth the trip. She's like, right. your book needs to be worth the trip. And she didn't let me settle for mediocrity, right? Like, I had eight more days in me. Nice. But I didn't know how to get to them. I needed her to be there to pull that out Successful of me. Successful people are willing to lean in and help. You just got to ask. You just got to ask. And you know what's even more interesting? When I asked people for blurbs, all the A-listers I asked said yes. And all the B-listers said no. And I called a friend, and I'm like, that's so strange. Why is that? And he said, how do you think they got to be A-listers? Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Successful people are willing to help. Yeah. You just got to ask. Hey, um, the book's a hell of a lot better than I thought. Good, <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Limitless. Got to read that. So, so um, let's let's go back to. I want three big takeaways with with this talk with you. Um, one is we talk about this idea of defining success yourself, right? Because, like you said, you don't have the prefrontal cortex. You're 17 years old. You're listening to teachers, parents, this, that. And then you end up in a place, maybe at 40 years old, where you're like, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. Right? So how, how where do you Where the do, hell do I go now? Where do I go now? So right. how, how do we do that? Okay. So what I found was that the people who were successful on paper and also happy in life had what I call consonance. And consonance is like alignment. It's flow. It's harmony. It's the opposite of dissonance, cacophony, like the, you know, all the noise and the chaos. And consonance comes from four things. It comes from calling, connection contribution and control and each one of us is going to want some bit of some of that in some kind of order but it's going to be different so calling is 
this gravitational force, this thing that's bigger than you. It's a business you want to build. It's a bottom line you want to grow. It's a family you want to nurture. Your it's why? A, it's your why, right? It's right. like a race you want to run. It's some. Right. It's this goal. It's thing that you have. And we get it wrong because we think it has to be tied to purpose. It's like lofty purpose, higher purpose. Like service can only be service if it's sacrifice. And the truth is that if your purpose is buying a Maserati in a beach house, then awesome. That's your purpose. Great. If your purpose is, you know, doing a Boston qualifier, Boston Marathon qualifier, awesome. If your purpose is building your business, if it's staying home with your kids, that's your purpose. And we have to stop giving votes to people in our lives who shouldn't have voices. Your purpose is your purpose, period. Second is connection. And connection answers the question of, does your work actually matter? So if you called them to work sick tomorrow, would anybody notice? Would anybody care? Right? Like, does your work actually connect to the calling that you want to serve? So we're all so busy being busy, right? We're getting to inbox zero and we're trying to, you know, get through our to-do list. But, like, does the work actually matter? So, so there's, um, there's a, a great blog, Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? Oh, I love that. Yeah, and the message is um, every single thing we did when we trained for the, for the Olympics in rowing, we asked ourselves, will it make the boat go faster? And I think that's what you're saying there, right? So, so if it is, you want the Maserati in the beach house is the thing you're doing getting you closer to that. Absolutely. When I first started my business, a few years in, I had the great fortune of having this business coach who, who was curious about what I was doing and wanted to help me. And I went to have breakfast with him, and I brought him all this great stuff. I brought him, like, my P&L sheets and my marketing material and all my to-do lists and all this. Stuff. And I thought I was going to get all the gold stars, and he, like, didn't look at any of it. And he basically was like, uh, what kind of life do you want? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he's like, what kind of life do you want? And is the work you're doing right now helping you build that? Like, how do you pay yourself? Right? And if you figure out how you pay yourself, you build a business that supports that rather than just building this, like, bigger, better, faster, more, because that's what we think we're supposed to do. Right? So does the work you're doing actually help get to wherever it is that you want to be? Because if it's not, it's just bullshit. Wasting time. It's just wasting time. Right? So that's connection. The third is contribution. And if connection is about the work itself, contribution is really about you, right? So how does this brand, this job, this paycheck allow you to have the money to live the life that you want, the freedom to have the kind of flexibility that you need to pursue whatever hobbies you care about, or allow you to manifest your values on a daily basis, right? Does it help you build the kind of career trajectory that you want? So what is the contribution that this job is bringing into your life? And then the last one is control. And so, like, I'm a control freak of the highest order. Didn't notice. Yeah. It's a little, I'm a little, I'd like to sit on the aisle seat of every airplane, not because so I think I. I'm going to, like, <laughs> like we, we are not going to survive the fiery ball of death, right? But the illusion of control, like, I <laughs> need the illusion of control. So, um, control really says how much personal agency do you have about the, the teams to which you're assigned, the clients that you get, um, how much hustle is going to, you know, going to reward you. Does, do you have the, the control over the amount of connection your work has towards that calling and how much it contributes to the life that you're trying to build? So when I was 21 and I dropped out of law school and I joined that presidential campaign, I was worth my weight in ramen soup, but I had all the calling in the world, right? I had no control, and I was getting coffee for the guy who got the coffee, who, you know, who got the coffee. This week, you know, I'm five speaking gigs in seven days, and I'm not getting on an airplane unless it really matters and it's building the business that I'm trying to grow totally different story now i was with somebody recently who said uh one of the reasons kids are so immersed in video games is um kids we all want control and kids get control on a video game that they might not get in their current environment that's a brilliant brilliant insight 
That was Nir Eyal. Yeah. Oh, right. he's got That's a great right. book. That was Nir Eyal. He's he, got a great book. He just wrote... Um, uh, he's indistractable. Distra- indistractable. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have a family meeting in our house every weekend. We have a 45-minute meeting. I've got two teenage boys, and we do a family meeting for 45 minutes, and we sort of go through who we are as a family and what our values are, and we it's like an airing of gratitudes, and then we talk about where everyone is during the week and, you know, who's making dinner on what night, and the kids pick a night where they're in charge of dinner, and then we do an airing of grievances... And that's like where shit gets real, right? Yeah. Like you strike while the iron's cold. And it's just, it's, it's, we've been doing it for two years and it has changed the tenor of our house awesome. because it gives them control, right. right? And it gives them personal agency to like be actually part of supporting this community. Otherwise they're just kind of following the, uh, in the footsteps. Yeah. Right? I mean, and would you ever run a business without having a regular meeting about how it's going no, and checking in with people? Like, why do we think running our families? Is I, was, I was at a meeting a couple of years ago and a, and a guy talked about, uh, Treating the kids like uh, board members, yes, and, having, and, and take them one. You know, we have four children, so going alone to dinner with one of them and going through some. Yeah, some is this Jim Shields? Eighteen summers. Uh, you know what? It was Jim Shields' friend. Oh, okay. That's how that Terrific. happened. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so uh, we defined success. We figured out how to define yes. success. Yes. Uh, we got through all four points. We defined success. Um, we talked about getting uncomfortable and getting comfortable being uncomfortable because that's where the magic happens, right? You talk about nine toes over the edge there. Um, and, and then the other one uh, you and I hit on prior to the interview was this idea of wonder hell. Yes. So explain that. So uh, a, a couple, a few months ago, I was flying back from a gig in Vancouver uh, where I shared the stage with Malala, right? That's ridiculous. So my book debuts at number two on the Washington Post bestseller list, right behind Michelle Obama, and I take a selfie with Malala in the same week, like probably the weirdest week of my entire life. And And uh, most awesome. And most awesome. And one that I've worked my ass off for, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm on a red eye, and I don't normally take red eyes because I'm too, too old to talk. I will get comfortable being uncomfortable anywhere but a red eye. That is, that's where I draw, that's that's where I draw the line. So I'm, I'm, the only reason I did it was that the gig ended at 5 p.m. and I had to be back for my goddaughter's bat mitzvah the next morning, right? Like, I, c- I couldn't miss Malal and I couldn't miss a bat mitzvah. I had to be in two places at once. So I'm waiting at the, um, at the airport lounge and it's delayed, it's delayed, it's delayed. And then finally they changed the, the plane. So rather than sitting in the nice first class live flat seat that my clients book for me, I'm in a like bolt upright center seat in coach flying, you know, catapulting across the country. And at four in the morning, I give up and I just open up my laptop and I just write this long post. And it starts something like, it's 4.28 a.m. or maybe it's 7.28 a.m. or maybe it's 1.28 a.m. I don't even know, but somewhere between the blur that was yesterday and the blur that is tomorrow is the space I'm in right now. And that space is wonder hell, right? It is so amazing and so wonderful and so incredible and humbling that anybody wants to spend even five minutes thinking about this book that I wrote and also I've never been so tired in my entire life and I've had two children and run three marathons it's hell it's wonder hell but wonder hell is the place where the burden of potential walks into your psyche and goes hey what you got for me huh what are you going to do with this I wrote this book that's you know a little better than you thought it was going to be I should put that as a blurb when I put up the paperback Joe Decina better than I thought it would be (laughs) that'd be perfect that's a nudge to write a second book yeah well I'm really good at getting people to do things way outside their comfort zone. Oh, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute uh, because you and I share that. Uh, so so this, what I, what I realized with this book is that I thought it had legs, and then I realized it had wings. And once I realized it had wings, 
I didn't know what to do with it. And what I realized was that the burden of potential, your burden that you feel is only as big as your ego. And I know they say, like, if you can name it, you can tame it. And I think that's nonsense, right? That tells you you should be afraid of it. I think if you name it, you can claim it. And I figure, like, I like I want to be on the Spartan podcast. I want to be under the oak tree with Oprah. I want to be in Reese Witherspoon's book club. Like, they got to have someone. Notice who you mentioned first, the Spartan Up podcast. Yeah, you know right. it, right? Because, again, I mean, athlete, Reese is cool, she, but. She's cool, but, I mean, come on. Let me Spartan. see her do some burpees. Let's right. see. Uh, so, look, I think, I think that uh, this place of wonder hell is a really interesting place. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about, I'm so busy, I'm so tired, I'm so this, I'm so that. And we talk about the hell But I want people to think about the wonder also. Like the wonder, I did not know that I was capable of this. I did not know that I could make a living speaking. I had no idea that it was even a job. And the very first talk I ever gave was in front of 2,600 people in a TEDx talk where it was like, no notes, no net, go. Ah, right? That's really scary. But if you do it and your pants don't light on fire and you make it through, you're awesome. And I have spent a lot of time talking people into things that they did not think they could do. I think my secret superpower, it's not so secret anymore because I'm going to say it on this giant podcast, is that I can look into someone's soul and I can see their greatness and I can reflect it back on them in ways that they can see it, maybe for the first time, but definitely act on it in ways that are meaningful to them. And that is super fun to be able to do. And I'm not doing anything to them. I'm just holding up a mirror, yeah. right? And I'm just challenging them to be that better version of themselves. So, I mean, that's why I love what you're doing. You do, with you these... do it with a mirror. I do it with a um, cattle prodder. Yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes it takes that, you know? Yeah, you never yeah. know. But I think, I mean, like, that's what's amazing about this race because there are, there are entry points for everyone at yeah. all levels. And then once somebody once somebody does better than they think like the first I ran that marathon the first one because I ran a mile and I was like I wonder if I could do three do a 5k yeah exactly that's what happens right so bringing people in and and doing it in an environment where you focus on the wonder and not the hell means that they're creating more and more and more and they're finding it inside of themselves and I just think that's a beautiful thing our our Spartan sentence you and I talked about uh, that defines wonder hell is um or maybe accentuates it as uh, you get to do this. I get to do this. You get to do this. Right? So, so you get, I'm paying to do this. You don't just get to do right. it, right? Like you're volunteering. I raise my hand to do this. Absolutely. You're putting yourself out there. And, you know, I just did that Everesting challenge we, we, we mentioned. And I drove up there to, to Vermont last two, two Thursdays, three Thursdays ago in the pouring rain. And I didn't tell anyone about it. And, you know, normally you tell people you make these public commitments. I didn't tell anyone about it. Mostly because I felt kind of silly because, like, I have friends who have actually climbed real Everest. And I was like, yeah, whatever. This is so – this is stupid. I'm 29,000 feet and, you know, not a lot of altitude. Turns out it was really hard. It was yeah. really hard. And and I, I remember thinking partway through it, this is really hard and I'm so lucky to get to feel this, to get to push myself and to get to know what I'm made of. Feeling, and to get to- Feeling pain, we learned on the last podcast, feeling pain means you're alive. Absolutely. You know those voices in your head that say, like, you can't do this. This is terrible. This is awful. Like, self-doubt. Are you sure you want to take this risk? I don't Legacy know. see hardware and software. Absolutely. Okay. I think that that's your cheering section. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, there you go. We yeah. think of it yeah. as self-doubt, but I hear it as the voice that says, congratulations, you've pushed farther than you did yesterday. Yeah. You're doing more. We didn't, we didn't more. think you'd make it. We didn't think you'd make it. And... You're going to do it, right? right? Like, yeah. good for you. Like, I hear the voices of self-doubt as a cheering section, and I, like I think it. we need to rewire ourselves to not have that old hardware, but to change the way that we tell the story around those voices. Let's recap. Define success properly, 
get comfortable being uncomfortable, and you get to do this in wonder hell. Absolutely. You're Rock awesome. on. You're awesome. Thanks so fun. much. Was I right? I mean, she's unbelievable. Yes, she is. Limitless. She's limitless. She sent me that book, and I was, I was unsure because, you know, you see titles like that, and you're like, I don't know. But um, I don't know. She's a pretty powerful woman. What, what, what jumped out at you? What was the main thing that jumped out at you? You know, the idea that sometimes we are not comfortable to live or just living a life without feeling like you have to be in charge, just having that control all the time. I think we all want control, right? I do sometimes, but it can be overwhelming sometimes to be thinking about that. I came from Orlando and I was flying and I thought, well, are we going to make it to New York? But the only thing that kept me, you know, believe that we'll make it, I said, I, I think the pilot wants to go and see his kids. <laughs> the pilot wants to get here. But no, but that's a good point because when you're sitting on an airplane, you're not in control. No, you're not. You the always, pilot's in control. Yes, and the thing about this airplane sometimes, they change sounds. You're flying and then it changes. You're like, what is that? Right. You feel like, okay, is there anything I need to do to help the situation? Even? No, and so what you're saying is life's going to come at you, and so just deal with it. Yes, deal with it. As long as you are doing the right thing, don't worry so much about Control. controlling everything because there are people out there too who are aspiring to change the world, so they will take care of business. You take care of what you can accommodate. I like that. And I love the fact that she interviewed all these high-level people. Yes, and it struck me that she said she was interviewing CEOs of non-profit organizations, big companies, and these guys were not happy with what they were doing. I was like, that is what I wanted. I want to be. I want to be a CEO of the highest company. But her explanation made a lot of sense to me. People do things they don't want to do in life, and they are forcing to be happy. They want to be contented. They want to be happy about what they are doing. But maybe that was not their purpose. But guess what? They are not willing to change because they are afraid. The, what, how are people going to regard this? We always talk in Spartan. Who cares about what people say or think? What do you want to do? No, that's right. That's right. We, we do tend to do what other people uh, would perceive as good, as opposed to just focusing on ourselves and doing something that's purposeful. Yes, and like sometimes when I'm driving around, I'm at a stop sign, I look to my left or the right, and I see, oh, this guy's driving a new car and then, or a fancy car, but then I go, but my car works. I can drive this. I don't care what people think of my car. It, it takes me to where I need to. You know, they said um, the number one thing they found with successful people is that they care less about what other people think. Oh, yeah, because... Like right now, even though we are sitting here with me, yep. do you know what I'm thinking about tomorrow? What are you thinking about tomorrow? We're getting up early and climbing that mountain. Yes, that's <laughs> part of it. But I'm trying to say, if you care so much about what other people are thinking about you, they might not be thinking about you. I'm, I'm not even thinking about you. You're not thinking about me? Tomorrow. <laughs> I'm thinking about my tomorrow. <laughs> I like that. And, and I like this idea of expand and adapt. Yes, because situations will change. When I was 20, I didn't know that at 28, I was going to be an amputee. It's true. Like, like we get stuck in these um, routines. Yes. And that's all we know. And we don't expand beyond what we know. Like a child, she was saying, right? A child absorbs all these different 
subjects yes. and learns everything. Mm -hmm. But then at some point we get on this rut, this routine. We drive to work every day. We do the same job, sit in the same desk. Get outside your comfort zone. Very true. And she mentioned something that really struck me. She said, you have to learn to be a comfortable in uncomfortable situations. That's right. And I was like, how do you do that? But it's true I though. I like that. Because like that. since you can't make situations yourself that you will face in life, you have to be ready in whatever circumstance comes Be ready to for you. anything. And, and that's a big message for us, right? Take, listen, you're very comfortable being uncomfortable. You've gone through some crazy stuff in your life. Um, and just growing up in Africa must have been uncomfortable. Yes, and you know, we have 19 siblings, 20 of us. 19 siblings. Yes. So, so, you, so sometimes you didn't even make it to the dinner table on time. No, if they say it's dinner time, you're two minutes late, you are done for the night. You didn't get food? No. Wow. But we'll, I learned how to be comfortable in those situations because what was I going to do? Get rid of my 19 siblings? <laughs> right. No. I'm sure you thought about it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about how do I survive through this? But that's an important point, right? Because she talked about that, that um, example of the janitor, um, right, being part of the team. So you had 19 siblings. Like when the whole team is rowing together in the same direction and with the same purpose and same belief, you win. Yes. You know, it was that really struck me. You know, the president works, walks to, the, to NASA and asks this janitor, what are you doing here? And he said, I am working here every day to get the first man to the moon. Right. And think about it. How many times do people just walk by somebody and maybe disregarding what they are contributing to the team? We're all contributing. Everybody is an important partner in a teamwork. I learned that during my first Spartan race in lovely Nevada because Running is an individual sport, you run, but then we are doing this. They say you cannot be 45 seconds or maybe 46 ahead of your team. But it gave me that sense of, yes, I am pushing somebody else. I am helping my teammates, and I'm not going to be that person who is going to pull their team back. I love it. I love it. All right, with that, um, make sure you, you tag us on Instagram. Make sure you check us out, uh, obviously, on YouTube. And don't only just listen um, uh, iTunes. <laughs> I'm terrible with all these things. I apologize. I'm more of a Flintstone, guys. Um, but check us out on all the social media channels. Tag us. Uh, we want to hear from you how you're going to be limitless. How are you going to be limitless? Because Marco and I are going to help you get there. And this is how they can be limited. Go ahead. They say, live life without limitations. I like that. Live life without. See? You don't even need us.